check, check. Who's me? I'm Sun Cutty. I'm a blues man. A lone sun cutting. Bring it at your feet, don't feel it, you keep running. Bring it at the funky drummer, keep strumming, cause I won't be stopped like hell, I keep coming. I'm a blues man. A lone sun cutting. Bring it at your feet, don't feel it, you keep running. Bring it at the funky drummer, keep strumming, cause I won't be stopped like hell, I keep coming. I won't be stopped like hell, I keep coming. I won't be stopped like hell, I keep coming. What's up, everyone? My name is Derek Lenoise, and I'm pretty sure you are quite shocked to hear a non-mother, and more importantly, a non-woman, on a podcast entitled Mama Lesson Number One. But there's a good reason for that. This podcast is dedicated to the honor, to honor the legacy of my mother, when I was growing up, my mother used to tell me all the time these life lessons. And she would capture these life lessons as mama lesson number one. Not to say that this lesson was more important than the last lesson. It was to say that she didn't remember what the last lesson number was. So all of them became mama lesson number one. My mother suddenly died on October the 19th, 2021. And we had slated for this upcoming summer time to write a book together entitled Mama Lesson Number One that I'm gonna still write as a memoir uh, for her and our relationship plus some advice. But I decided that in honor of her life, I wanted to impart some of the wisdom that she gave me remix. And so, like I said, my name is Derek Lenoise, and that is not the name that I usually go by. Most of my friends and even my students call me DL. I am a professor of African-American history at Norfolk State University. I have a PhD in African-American history and culture, specializing in African-American history and culture since enslavement. Uh, particularly looking at my dissertation work was on Prince Hall Affiliated Freemasonry. I'm a Prince Hall Mason, and I was interested in connecting what I learned about the organization to African-American history and culture. But my specialty also include other fraternal organizations and African-American institutions, particularly in the South. And that's part of what this podcast is going to be dealing with is some of the um, historical and cultural ideology that comes from lessons of African-Americans. And one of the things that my mom was about, she really was about uh, using uh, storytelling techniques and uh, advice techniques that are grounded in uh, African-American history and culture in the South, which of course traces back itself to Africa. And those mean that means that she used uh, analogies and allegories to convey her ideas about what lessons I need to do. So she, you know, um, she would give me straight advice, but she also would give me advice in using these analogies and and uh, allegories, both from herself as well as people that she knew. And so one of those. Um, 
analogies or allegories that's rooted in this podcast is uh, there's two ways to learn. You can buy that sense. And what you know that, and, and when you bought that sense is what she would say. You bought that, and that bought sense is that you heard from someone not to do something, and you decided to do it anyhow because you didn't, you couldn't learn from the first way, which is someone else's struggle or story to get there. And so there's the bought sense and the story sense, uh, where somebody could warn you away from something, and you like, you know what, that's a good idea. I'm not going to do that. Or, you know, because some of you all, you know, growing up when your parents told you not to put your hand on the eye because it was hot. As soon as they turned their back, you put your hand on the eye to find out it was actually hot and not to do it again. Right. And so uh, that's one of the lessons that she taught me that those are the ways to learn. Right. Right. And so she never impacted me or imparted to me this idea that. Um, her way or the highway, she rested in the faith that if I decided to do the opposite of what she's saying, I'm about that sense. I'm, a, I'm it's going to prove itself wrong, and then I got to figure it out, right? Another one of those lessons that she taught me was, and and many of our parents taught us this, is the idea of you made that bed, you got to lie in it now. But my mother said it differently, differently than, you know, you made that bed, you have to lie in it because she wanted to get it at the point of when you are making a decision. So she taught me life is full of decision. Make one. Right. And so whatever decisions you make, you don't want to live with those. Right. And so she she imparted a lot of these ideas to me. And I want to share those ideas with the world. I want to share these lessons to that she taught me to the world using African-American history and culture and storytelling, but also not just African-American history, but also African-American history that's rooted in the South. I am born and raised Memphis, Tennessee, if you couldn't tell by my glorious accent. And we're going to talk about how, sub, how, how sexy a uh, Southern accent is. Um, and I got that deep South accent. And so uh, I'm, I, when I first started moving around and traveling, my voice and accent used to be a point of contention for me and, and, or embarrassment. And I didn't want people, but I, I you know, I've, I've grown into it. I like it. I love it. Uh, it shows where I'm from. I'm, I, I think I'm no different than um, any other uh, set of people who have an accent when they travel and or or move to a new location and so I'm, I'm go, I take pride in my deep south um, the most northern point of the Delta Memphis Tennessee uh, accent right uh, but so this podcast is about intermixing my educational life my my uh, degreed life with my upbringing and 
the lessons that she taught me, but also remixed through my gender, remixed through my activism, remixed through my understanding of the world as well. And so I would tell you what she would say. I would then add my little uh, aspect to it if there's anything that I want to adapt or adopt from it. And then I also will be using African-American history and culture to talk about some of these lessons as well. But to honor my mother, I want to talk a little bit more about her in this first episode. So there's not going to be any mama lessons in this first episode. The, the second episode actually is going to contain uh, the first set of mama lessons. But I want to talk about her and who she is and my relationship with her and her relationship with me, uh, my family, her friends and coworkers and classmates and my friends. And um, so her name is Deborah Ann Lenoa. She was born on July 18th, 1953. And she passed away on October the 19th, 2021. And I'm about to start crying. And um, I'm doing this podcast just as much as to honor her legacy but also for my own therapy, for my own acceptance and continuation of her legacy. And so one of the things I'm not going to do is when I have these moments of crying, I'm not going to edit those out. I'm going to keep those. I want to honor not only who she is and was to me, but that a part of me mourns greatly the loss that I feel, but also am thankful for everything she did for me. And um, the first episode that's dealing with mama lessons will be about her teaching me how to die and that process. And and so she she taught me that in that process, in the, watching her do it. And so she even gave me mama lessons in her final weeks. But the one lesson she never told me was how to live without her. And um, that's a hard one. And um, I had to deal with that. And so uh, I'm not going to ask you to bear with me, but, you know, it is... Um, it's hard. It's, it's just it's just really hard, anyhow. So Deborah Ann Lenoas was born July eighteenth and died on October the nineteenth of this year, and she um was a single parent. She raised me, and she was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. She was the first generation of um both sides of for my grandfather and my grandmother they both was born in uh, different states in the south and they they so my mom was uh, and my aunts were the first generation that was born in memphis and i was born in memphis and my son was born in memphis and so we are three generations who were born uh in memphis now my son is not being raised in memphis he visits memphis now um, because I live now in Norfolk, and so he's here with me. But my mom, my mother decided that 
she liked her name enough to give me her initials. And so she named me Derek. She named me Derek after a cousin uh, slash play friend that lived on the street. And she wanted to, like many African-Americans, believe that in giving a child a name is honoring what they will be in life. And so she wanted to imbue me with this name based on this young man that uh, grew up with her that was, like I said, a play cousin. Uh, and, you know, she talked about his honesty, his leadership, his um, integrity, laughter, and all these kind of things, and that she wanted me to have those, so she named me Derek. And that went. That also coincided with us having the same name, you know, initials. So then it came to my middle name is Albion, and she didn't want to give me just a regular middle initial of A. So my aunt Ida, who I call Bay Sister, uh, looked through a magazine and found this word Albion and and named me Albion. And uh, I used to have to call my mother to get how to pronounce my middle name growing up because I didn't know it. And now that I'm old enough to uh, Google <laughs> search my middle name, most likely they my mother uh, blackified it <laughs> at, because in uh, England, there's an Albion, A-L-B-I-O-N, if I remember correctly, that is a part of some part of England or, or, or a neighborhood or a town or something in England. And um, but I spelled my, my mother spelled my middle name A-L-B-E-O-N. And so um, Albion is my middle name. So she gave me her initials. And so I, my, I named my son after me because I appreciated my mother explaining to me what and why she named me after, you know, those initials and as well as uh, giving me Derek and Albion. And so I wanted to imbue those same things in my son, but I made him a second and not a junior because I wanted him to be able to one day outgrow me, to one day be his own man. And second has a more uh, sophisticated sound once he grows up. Right. So he's a he will be a second instead of a junior and he would not have to think of himself as a junior. And so we don't do the big Derek, little Derek. We don't do the junior uh, senior thing at all. He's Derek. He's the only one in the household that's called Derek. Uh, my mother never really called me Derek growing up. I was Maine. Now, if you know anything about Memphis, man, <laughs> Um, is one of those terms that everybody's called, but 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 she was calling me man, like I was a little man, and so she was preparing me for adulthood. But um, she also um, stopped calling me that and started calling me son. And I can't tell you what age it was. I was like I was a teenager by the time she started calling me son. But she renamed me son, and, and so she pretty much only called me son. In fact, she called me son so much, all of her friends, classmates, and coworkers, anybody, even people uh, in the store. So this uh, white lady at uh, one of the department stores in the mall heard us, 
her her call me son 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 all over the time all over the place and she must have thought it was you know hilarious because when she my mother called me son i would call her mother right because i'm son i'm you know she's, she's mother and so this uh my mother was quite uh country and so she would yell for me right like you know if you grew up in the 80s and the 90s you remember that we didn't grow up with cell phones or anything like that and so if our parents wanted to get us to come in or find us in the neighborhood that go to the front door and yell your name and and there would be this network of people who would let you know your mother is calling for you or somebody's calling for you from your house for me it was my mother um as and or you needed to be an earshot of that yale uh you know and so uh, so we would be in the department store. She never left that philosophy. And so we was in this department store. I say grocery store, but we was in this department store. And um, she yelled, son. And she must have said it enough times for this white lady <laughs> to come find me and be like, son, mother is looking for you. And both my mother and I just fell out laughing because... Um, she didn't really like embarrassment wasn't one of her things. Like she didn't care about what other people thought. So it never crossed her mind how it looked or sounded for her to be yelling son in the store and not calling me by my name. And so um, so she, she had everyone calling me son. So nobody really calls me uh, Derek except for women that want to date me or that I've dated. Uh, they're the only people that refuse to call me DL. Uh, which are, of course, my initials, uh, which I get that a lot, you know, R. Kelly and um, uh, May D.L. <laughs> um, uh, me, well, R. Kelly didn't make it mean something. Uh, was it, um, oh, what's the guy that wrote that book? His last name is King and went on Oprah, Oprah's show, but the one that was on the download, uh, he made D.L. transform into about being... Um, gay but uh, performing as if you were heterosexual and so anyhow uh, so no one else calls me uh, Derek and so my son will have his own identity anyhow back to Deborah Ann so um, that's another thing uh, my mother and I she would call me by my whole name so she'll call me Derek Lenoir when she really wanted to get my attention sometimes. And so I would call her Deborah Ann in those moments, right? So I called my mother by her first and middle name. And I always called her by her first and middle name when I talked about her to other people. I rarely called her mama <laughs> um, growing, you know, growing up and or once I became adult. And uh, I started calling my, I, I, you know, there's a story behind uh, why I did strategically start calling my mother mom mama for a little while and that was because growing up I called her Didi her nickname was Didi and so I used to call my mother Didi up until I was about in fifth or sixth grade and I was um I had gone to my mother and said uh mama and she said no and I was like no I hadn't even said anything yet she then goes on to tell me that the only time I ever called her mama is when I wanted something. And because of that, she she was like, I don't have no money. And so the answer is no. Whatever you about to ask me for, the answer is no, because you want something. And in in my little young mind, I I thought I could argue or debate and create a logical argument 
on why I needed X, Y, and Z. But if I called her mama, you know, and this was a unconscious thing that I was doing. And so if I called her mama unconsciously and she knew to fix her mouth to say no off the rip, that meant, at least for me, strategically, I started calling her mama all the time, right? Because I couldn't fix it to where I could remember to always call her Didi. But if I could remember to call her mama all the time, then she won't see it coming. And then she would have to listen to me to hear my great argument on why she needed to give me whatever the hell I wanted. <laughs> and so I started calling her mama uh, for a few years. Um, with that strategy, it didn't work. It didn't work because she still was a single parent, uh, uh, raising me in a non-traditional family. And so my, my mom's oldest sister, Helen, had three children that my grandmother took from my, uh, aunt because my aunt had a mental illness. Uh, we don't know what, you know, back then they didn't uh, try to diagnose mental illness and everything. And so we don't, I don't, we just, we still don't to this day know what her mental illness was, but she didn't have the capacity for the ability to raise children. And so my grandmother took those kids, those three kids from my uh, aunt and was raising them, but then my grandmother uh, passed away when I was on my way to the second grade. And it fell on the responsibility to my other, to my mom and my other two aunts to raise my eldest aunt's children, Helen's, Helen's children. And so I grew up in a household, my aunt, Bay sister, that I told you about a minute ago, Bay sister moved out because she got married. Uh, later that year, right, and so my um, my grandmother died in J July of the year that I was going to the second grade. Bay sister got married in October of the of my second grade year, and my mom and I moved into the house, uh, my grandmother's house, um, to help. My other aunt, who has no children, her name is Johnny, but we call her Louise because my grandmother's first name is Johnny. My aunt's first name is Johnny. So to separate those two, uh, Louise is called Louise because Johnny was the adult and Louise was the child. And so uh, those were my mom's uh, sisters. And so we got Helen. Her name was Mary Helen. We call her Helen. We got baby sister, uh, although her first name is Ida because she was Helen's baby sister. And then we have Louise, whose name is Johnny, uh, but she couldn't be called Johnny because that's her mama name. And then we have my mom, who was the youngest, named Deborah Ann. And so, um, so I grew up in a house with, I'm an only child, but I grew up with three cousins, Barbara, Sammy, and Sheila. And so my aunt, who has no children, my mom... Uh, raised the four of us, and Bay sister, you know, helped out. And uh, but she didn't live in the household anymore because, like I said, she got married. And so um, my mom couldn't, even if she wanted to, splurge on me. Couldn't. And one of the things that her and I had a conversation about, she told me this growing up, but she also told me this later in life as well, was that she didn't want to show any kind of favoritism 
towards me. And so she was harder on me and gave them more <laughs> because she didn't want them to, you know, feel like because I was her biological son that they were different than me. And so she was harder on me and expected more out of me. And so when they brought home C's, they got praises. When I brought home a B, she she talked like I was in trouble. They brought in ends, you know, and use, and they 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 were told that you know as N stood for need improvement that they just needed improvement and do better, whereas I got a S which was satisfactory, instead of an E which was supposed to be excellent. Uh, I had to get excellent. I had to be excellent in everything, and I had to share and all this other kind of stuff. Like she did buy me stuff, right? And so the Nintendo was my gift. But it was my gift that I had to share. <laughs> so I didn't have this only child experience. And she wanted to make sure that um, I was not as spoiled or it was the perception was that I was not spoiled. And I was um, listening to uh, this podcast called Sex with Emily. And I love the podcast Sex with Emily, and so I'm going to play a excerpt from Sex with Emily, where they talk about a young man who is um, he was he's 40, and you're going to hear this in the clip. And um, but they call him a Mama's boy, and I, and I guess one of the things that my mom was uh, weary of was for me to get that title of being a uh, mama's boy and so let's hear what how they discuss this and sex with emily is a advice uh podcast of course about sex sex and relationships um and so this young lady has called in to talk about breaking up with a, a boyfriend over the holidays and she wanted to know if that was basically okay uh for her to do that and uh sex with emily is having that conversation uh with her Oh, like, so he sounds okay. like cheap, right? Like, he, <laughs> like you're supposed to buy for him, and he's not going to buy. Yeah, he sounds maybe he's a little cheap and insensitive. I think he's just selfish more than anything. Well, that is selfish. That way too, is I've noticed how spoiled he is. Like, he moved during our relationship, and his aunt and his mom showed up and cleaned his new apartment, oh, top to bottom, and set him up. Oh God, he's a mama's boy. How old is he? He's forty. Oh, he's 40. I'm telling you, it doesn't mean anything about it. Age doesn't really tell you anything, but he sounds no, like he's does. kind of a mama's no. boy, maybe spoiled. Yeah, it sounds like you, you know, and if he's, you know, but if you... Yeah, I'm just yeah. getting more and more hints as we go along. Yeah, like, oh. that says a lot. He's 40, his mom cleaned the place, he doesn't have a car, and you're picking him up, and you're a giver, you're a pleaser. Like, it feels good to you to give I someone. Am. Yeah, I can tell. You want to fill him up. You don't mind driving him. You don't mind. That's who you are. And that's really easy to also end up with people who might take advantage of it. Okay, and so um, I w am not a mama's boy in any kind of real way, but my mother did, and uh, her and our relationship was where she would help me out. She would do, you know, a lot for me. And I, you know, distinctly remember when I was getting my Ph.D., my mom had only visited Atlanta. I got my PhD out of Georgia State University, and I, you know, like I said, I'm from Memphis. And so my mom had only visited um, Atlanta one time prior to me uh, going up to do my comprehensive exams. And she came the first year that 
No, she came the second year that I lived there with my whole family. And so uh, and they, they came for what I call Thanksgiving holiday. And so because the indigenous people didn't give her anything. And so it's Thanksgiving to me. And so over the Thanksgiving holiday, because holidays were really important to my mother. She liked family and gatherings and these kind of things. And so she um, so I, I talked her into bringing the whole family down. <laughs> uh, so basis, um, Louise. Uh, Ebony and Darrell, who are Bay Sister children, uh, they even brought Barbara's uh, daughter, um, Tiffany, down. Uh, and so we, they brought the family and stuff down, so we had Thanksgiving holiday. And I want to say they brought Helen down as well, but um, th we had Thanksgiving holiday at my place in Atlanta. So that was, that was the only time she had come down to Atlanta to visit me, and she didn't come by herself. But I can't type. I can't type. And so if you know anything about a PhD program, there's these things called comprehensive exams. And as the name sounds, it's a uh, the, the exams is a set of when you say that you are an expert in X, Y, and Z, you got to prove it, right? So the more education you get, so a bachelor's degree is very broad, a master's degree, you're mastering something, so it's a little bit more narrow. A PhD is one of the most narrow degrees that you can get because you're really honing in on a particular topic uh, or subject matter. And so my subject matter was African-American history, which meant that, you know, um, and we have what these what we call major fields and minor fields. And so my major field was African-American history and my minor field was uh, African-American gender studies, gender and sexuality studies. Those are my major and, and minor fields. And um, with your major fields, you have to both do written and an oral defense. And so they will be able to ask you questions that you don't know what they're going to be asking you ahead of time. Right. And so you have to do all this reading. You got to do all this preparing because you got to be able to cite sources and all this other kind of stuff all off the top of your head. And and so um, we did it a little differently because some people will have to they will lock them in a room and and tell them you got so many hours to be here in this little room by yourself uh, and, and blase, blase, blase. Well, our, our comprehensive exam allowed us to do them uh, from our from the comfort of our homes and um so my mom came and my aunt came and uh what they did for me my mom and my aunt so uh, louise and and deborah ann came to atlanta georgia and spent 24 hours they, just for 24 hours for me to do my comprehensive exams where i could dictate to my mother what I was saying, okay, for she to, cause she could type really fast, so she could type as fast as I could talk, and we can see I talk really fast. Now sometimes she would ask me to repeat, and my aunt job, uh, who was uh, uh, she's retired now, uh, but she was a English teacher, so my aunt job was to go in and autocorrect the stuff that my, cause my mom then wasn't trying to. Um, type for spelling but she was typing for understanding and so my aunt then went in and 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 changed the 
words. So if my if I meant T H E I R, and my mother typed in T H E R E, my aunt would then go in and do the correct spelling of that and then i got it to make sure everything was consistent because my aunt had my neither my mom or my aunt are subject matter experts so they were just parroting what i was telling them they have no clue on if it made any sense or not and so i had to look at it to make sure that the my team had done what needed to be done uh for it to be you know done and and, and you have to do both of these um so like i said um both like so i had a day you know and, and it wasn't a full day it was like eight hours or six hours i can't remember how many hours it was but in that day i had only so many hours to answer maybe six to eight questions that each of those major field um people gave me and my mom came down to help me and according to sex with emily right that kind of help would throw me into this mama boy uh, category and, and and I've moved before. And my mother has come help to clean up, uh, but also uh, oh, let me go ahead and say, my mom and my aunt Louise were tied at the hip. They were freaking frack. When you saw one, you saw the other. When you saw the you know other, you saw the one, right? And so so when I talked about my mom going to Atlanta, of course Louise was there because. What else was Louise going to do? <laughs> because it was together all the time. Of course, when I said my mom came to help clean up, of course, that meant my aunt came to clean up because uh, they were together all the time. One came with the other. I might have asked my mom for help, but that automatically meant Louise was going to be there. And so, but that there, there's practical reasons for that, right? I move at the last minute. I'm a last minute type of person, right? I've, you know, now part of the reason why. Uh, this podcast did not get out in December and that is, is going to be released in on um, probably the first day of January is because I, I'm still in, I'm still grieving. Right. And so it was just re it's really hard to get the motivation. I, I'm, I'm dealing with depression and anxiety and overwhelming grief. Right. And so. So just trying to trying to get up to do this was a lot of work, but I'm also a procrastinator. And so I, you know, uh, I moved a lot in my life. I've lived in Atlanta, you know, three different times, um, uh, which meant I moved to Memphis, you know, so every time I've left one place is usually going back to Memphis. And so I've lived in DC. Uh, I've lived in Atlanta, like I said, three times. I lived in Richmond, Virginia. I lived in Jackson, Tennessee. I've lived in um, Holly Springs, Mississippi. Um, all, you know, dealing with some form, you know, and all of these places as adults. Uh, as an adult, he's only one of me, right? Uh, as an adult, and um, my mom has helped me in some of those moves. My mom helped me with my... Uh, with this very critical part of my uh, PhD because I didn't think I would be able to think and type in enough time to where I would be able to pass my uh, comprehensive exams and I wanted to pass them, right? Like all of this work to die uh, because of typing just didn't seem right to me. And so she came and helped me out. And so and and, and maybe one day we'll have a conversation outside of Mama Lesson and just a what's up kind of conversation because I think it, we need to have a conversation about why is a daddy's girl a good thing but a mama's boy is a bad thing, right? 
Uh, not to say that I'm, you know, I was dependent on my mother. Like I said, my mother told me, you know, life is full of decisions. So I was my own person for a very long time. She let me make decisions at starting at a very young age. You know, um, I tell people all the time, my mother helped me start making decisions in the first grade. Because when I was a kid, um, cookies used to be 25 cents at lunchtime. Riding the bus, I had to ride the public bus home from school. And it was just one bus, and I had I knew what stop I needed. There was two stops I could get off on to make it home. And so she taught me all of those things. And so I, in first grade, I was riding the bus by myself. And But she didn't tell me <laughs> was that, like, so I'll tell you the story. All right. And so when I was in first grade, I went off to school, and cookies cost 25 cents. And so at lunchtime, the lady asked me if I wanted a cookie. So, of course, I wanted a cookie. And then she was like, 25 cents. I was like, oh, I didn't know they cost money. And so I was like, uh, okay, here go, you know, 25 cents. Because my mother had gave me enough money for lunch. And enough money for me to be able to ride the bus home. But that she did not factor in cookies. <laughs> she did not factor in me wanting a cookie. And so I bought this cookie because as a six-year-old, well, yeah, I think you're six when you're in the first grade. So as a six-year-old, I didn't have the foresight to say, well, if I spend my bus money, how am I going to get home? So when I got out of school and I can't take the bus because I don't have 25 cents, I went to the office and I called my mom at work and was like, hey, mother, I bought me some cookies. I need you to come get me. And she was like, I gave you the money to ride the bus. You made a decision. You chose to buy cookies. That meant that you chose <laughs> to walk home. <laughs> So my mother made me walk home in the first grade and I had to walk the bike. I mean, the, I had to walk the bus route because I had we, we didn't discuss how to walk home. So I had to walk on the other side of the street because that's the side of the street, you know, because I don't know how to drive, you know, in the first grade. Uh, and so I had to walk on the other side of the street um, like the bus went and then cross over and all this other kind of stuff to make it home and I did, I did, I'm, you know, clearly I'm here. And so what that meant for me for the rest of that entire time that I was supposed to be riding the bus, it meant when I wanted cookies, it meant I was gonna walk home. Like I could make that decision ahead of time. You know what? It's raining today and I don't feel like being in the rain. So I ain't getting any cookie today. Or I could say that 25 cent to uh, buy me some chips or buy me something else, right? I could use, I could save that money up instead of paying for the bus. I could walk it. And so she helped me make decisions. So I've never been this mama's boy because my mother taught me, as, as, as Sex with Emily described it, as Webster Dictionary described it, as this um, a person, and this is off the top of my head because I, I looked it up, but um, as a person who overly is influenced by not a person but a son who is overly influenced by his mother uh to and to make you know decisions and all the other kind of stuff now one of the other the, the second half of it was that is uh, uh loves his mother and i just think why loving your mother makes you a mama's boy whereas being a daddy's girl is a good thing always right 
Uh, she can be 80 talking about I'm I'm just a daddy's girl, right? <laughs> and she ain't seen girl in a long time. And so anyhow, uh, so that was, you know, I think one of the things my mom might have been cognizant of was this idea that she didn't want she didn't want me to be seen as a mama's boy. Um and but my mother didn't teach me gender. She didn't teach me growing up that boys do this and girls do that as far as labor goes. But, uh, you know, she might have been thinking about uh, me being a quote unquote uh, mama's boy. And to this point, I think about I uh, on Steve Colbert uh, or Stephen Colbert. I, I guess that's his name. I, I don't watch his show. Uh, I just so happened to see that Denzel Washington was on his show. And I just was like, you know what? Why was Denzel on the show? So I, I listened to this show and, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a Southerner. Uh, I'm a black person or African-American. And because of that, I, be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm full of faith. I, I grew up, my mother, uh, my grandmother was uh, church of God in Christ. My mother was church of God in Christ. I grew up in the church of God in Christ. And so um, we're very faith based people. And I have a deep love and appreciation for God as well as signs and symbols and all the things that black people, especially in the South, believe in. And so it was God's will for me to click on this because I didn't know that Denzel Washington had just lost his mom. And that's what part of the show was about. And so I'll let you all listen to it because what Denzel says it's really important to me and it counters this idea of, you know, this concept of a mama's boy. Washington, I'm sorry to hear that you lost your mother this year. Yeah, at the age of yeah. 97. 97. 97. It's a great blessing to have your mother so long. She didn't get cheated, nor did my brother and my sister and I. You said that um, a mother is a son's first love. Mm. And I'm curious, how do you honor that love and her love for you and her memory? with your work? A mother is a son's first true love. A son, especially that first son, is a mother's last true love. That's, I'm getting choked up. You know, the interesting thing about this confidence, this guy, his confidence right here. Right. Sigmund Freud, who had his faults, said that a, a son who believes himself to be his mother's favorite has a lifelong confidence that nothing can shake. Wow. I don't know if I was a favorite. I, I gave her the hardest time, I can tell you that. <laughs> I gave her a hard time. Well, Denzel, it was really wonderful to see you again. Thanks so much for coming. My here. pleasure. Hug them, love them. I like what this analogy of uh, Denzel Washington saying that um, son's first love is his mother. And a son, especially that first one, is a mother's last love. Because um, I truly believe my mother loved me. And I loved her. And um, to express that love left me with no regrets. The biggest thing that I am stuck with in my mind and it's not a it's a regret but not a regret at the same time because I had to honor what she wanted 
but I wanted to record my mother for prosperity. I'm an I'm African-American historian, and I, and I do oral history, and I do family history, and I wanted to get her story from her. And she had come to live with me during COVID to help me with my son to be able to where my son my son has health conditions like asthma like I do and we didn't want him to go back to public we didn't want him to be at the whims of a governor or a school board who then decides what they think is best for the health of my child and so uh, I recruited my mother to be able to move to Norfolk Virginia with me to help be his teacher uh, his first grade year and while she was living with me I asked her several times for me to record her uh, video wise downstairs uh, where we can get her story and she agreed she wanted to do it she was she believed in family history she loved for us to explore and to learn more about family history and listening to our family history and she wanted to do more because she loved family. She loved family and legacy and honoring the ones that came before us. Uh, and so she was all for it. However, because of COVID, she couldn't get her hair done. <laughs> and she didn't want to be recorded video-wise without her being done. And I honored that. Because every time I would ask her, her hair was being plaits or something, and she just like, ah, not today. And 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 it, she never really got it to a place to where it was video recordable. <laughs> and uh, so I do regret it, but I had to honor her decision because it would help me so much now. And that's going to be part of Mama Lesson number one the over the episodes when I'm talking about the lessons she taught me while dying that you know in writing her obituary and you'll hear this again but in writing her obituary I would have loved to be able to have her stories not based on my memory because I'm that's what I'm you know so afraid of that my memory is going to fail me that my memory is wrong and faulty because we know how memory works uh, I read through my, I used to, you know, when I was in college, I started reading these self-help books and I really believed in self-help books. And, and, and this was the reason why I wanted to write uh, this Mama Lesson Number One book with my mother because I love self-help books, but not a lot of self-help books are geared towards African-Americans and then more importantly, not geared towards African-American men. They're not, they're gendered because I don't know if, if, if the idea is black men don't read if uh, black men don't think they need help. I don't know what the reasoning is, but there's not a lot of self-help books that are geared towards black men that are worthwhile, you know, you know, like how to be a player, right? Like how to pick up women and, you know, all those kind of foolishness. Uh, they might have books like that, but not about how to love, uh, how to be in a relationship, how to grow, um, how to be a better husband, a, a father, as both being black and man at the same time, right? And a lot of those things are geared towards black women, and which is going to the reason why I got a podcast called Mama Lesson Number One, because my I, I didn't have a father growing up. I didn't really learn what his name was until after I was uh, over 30. And I've never consciously met him. It's only recently that my mother told me I had my the baby me actually met him 
and and his mother and um i i didn't know it i didn't because clearly i was a baby he um for whatever reason and my aunt my sister told me that um he has two children as well and um i i tried he was in the military in some branch my mother couldn't remember which branch because I wanted to join USAA because, you know, they got such great rates. <laughs> but you had to be you got to be related to somebody in the military. And so I was going to try to use that. And um, my mother didn't want. I, you, know, you, I, you know, I can't speak on this at all at why, but my mother never told me anything about him. She never even told me what his name was. Never. I, you know, when I, I distinctly remember when I turned 13, I went to her because I was a teenager trying to become a man. And uh, I went to her and I asked her what his name was. She said, it don't matter. <laughs> and that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> and so then, and I didn't, I didn't go looking for it. I, you know, I took that no and, and kept it moving. And then, um, in my thirties, my early thirties, my aunt just so happened. Um, I don't even know how we got on the conversation, but she has just so happened to see him and blah, blah, blah. And she told me stuff about him that I, did, I could never get from my mom. And so I recently asked my mom more information about him. And the more I pressed her, I, that's when I found out I had met him uh, growing up, you know, not growing up, but as a baby. And then I met his mother. His mother had this uh, huge baby photo of me and all of this kind of stuff. And then when I was pressing her for more information, she shut down. She became short and, and, and angry. And uh, that, that was a signal to back off. <laughs> and so I did. So I don't know much about him. And I don't know if she thought I was going to go seek him out in some kind of longing. But I won't. And I didn't, you know, I hope to find him. I do not for the reasons y'all think I, I want to find him to make claims to his inheritance. He owe her so much in raising me because he had nothing to do with it. And, um, you know, this is one of the reasons why I'm a huge Tupac fan, um, uh, because hit my father's failure to be in my life made it a positive for me because I ended up with a community of fathers and I ended up with a community of fathers who I only saw them on their best day. I only saw them on their better judgments, which meant that I never picked up any of their bad habits, right? I never picked up any of their bad habits. And that is a blessing. And so I was able to learn some ethics and some uh, masculinity that was not rooted in women's oppression or children's oppression. It was rooted in humanness and being and being that being a male is not a automatic deterrent or oppressive nature, right? That everything that is oppressive about being a man is taught, right? And, 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 and women have oppressive things about femininity and, and feminism as well. 
But when we think about, you know, masculinity, we usually think about it, you know, we got this idea of toxic masculinity and these kind of things. And so I, I benefited growing up in a household full of women and girls with one other boy and having my male friend's fathers on their best day. I, I, you know, so I, if I had my father in my life, it would have impacted me in ways. Now, it did impact me one way is that I am a dad to my son and to my non-biological daughter who has my non-biological daughter has never called me dad before and when I was when she was growing up I didn't want her to call me dad I wanted to be Derek because and then um my son now that he understands I am his dad that's my title and role he's going to be able to call me Derek from here on he'll be able to call me DL from here on out I'm going to allow him to call me DL because my mama let me call her DD and Deborah Ann and all, all these other kind of things, right? Because I want him to know that I am more than that role. Like I was to my mother. I am. It took her dying for me to figure out that she was one of my best friends. And a best friend that... no other human being could ever be the level of trust and advice and and just I, you know and and part of this podcast to help you not take for certain things for granted because i took for granted how much my mother was there for me what does that mean is that I could call my mother any day, any night, any place. And unless it truly was something that she was doing that she could not stop from doing, she was there for me. She put everything down for me. And to deal with, you know, People now, you know, even family, you know, Bay Sister and Louise, they love me to death. But they can't put everything down for me the way that she does, did. You know, I, you know, uh, I text my aunt for a recipe. And it took her days to get back to me. If I had text my mom for that same recipe, it would have took her minutes. It would have took her a minute to type it up <laughs> that, or for her to call me and say, here it is, right? The, you know, um, one of my mom's uh, friends was a, one of her coworkers that <laughs> wanted to meet me in person. What does that mean that she wanted to meet me in person? Because <laughs> she worked with my mom at this place called Community Service Agency, uh, CSA. And one of the things about CSA was that you could dial zero for the operator. And so I would call my mother. This is how much she was there for me. This is how much my mother was there for me. And I took for granted because it didn't dawn on me until my aunt didn't get back into, in contact with me uh, for a couple of days about this recipe. Was that I would call my mother in her office and if she had stepped away and I called her two or three times and she hadn't answered my call, I would they'll go ahead and press zero for the operator. 
And sometimes she would hear her phone and was like, I know that son and would try to get to it to where I wouldn't dial zero for the operator. Because when I dial zero for the operator, I would then ask her name is Susan. I would ask Susan. Oh, and Thelma. Thelma was um, no Thelma worked at um, Department of Children's Services. But I would ask. I think it was another lady that uh, worked at CSA in the, on the front desk as well. But I would ask Susan to page my mother, which meant that it would be a company-wide <laughs> PA announcement, right? Even though a PA, the A stands for announcement, you, you know, black people still got to say the, the thing, right? CPT time, you know, the T stands for time, CPT. All you have to do is say CPT. Color people time is CPT, but black people will say CPT time. <laughs> and, or uh, the AUC Center, <laughs> right? The Atlanta University Center is what AUC stands for, but then you'll say AUC Center, right? That's Center Center. But anyhow, um, uh, so to, to make this PA announcement, she, that the whole company, everybody that worked there were here, uh, Deborah Lenoise, <laughs> your son is looking for you. Call him. He on, he, on, he on the line, right? And then she had to call the front desk to tell them either to go on, you know, tell her where to transfer me to or that she's going to call me back. <laughs> and then uh, one of her favorite sayings is, uh, and, th- and my son says this, my son just made me cry uh, because um, his mother and I was just talking about lemonade and how this lemonade doesn't taste like lemon, it, like it has any lemon, it's just some sugar water, some water. And when she said it was some sugar water, he said, mm, just like my mom broke me down because Derek and my mom, that was his ace. They were together uh, all the time. And he picked up every country. Like I said, he ain't growing up in Memphis, but he was just, you would swore he was in the Delta, Mississippi. Uh, his little Southern twang. <laughs> Uh, is on point because of his uh, and and his pronunciation um, of words are straight Deborah Ann's and um, yeah um, so I I made this uh, I made she showed up for me in in ways that I did not appreciate until she passed on so anyhow so I want you all to be able to understand and. Love on your mother, especially men. Love on your mother while you have her. Like he said, hug them and kiss them. Love on them while you can, right? Don't be afraid of being a quote-unquote mama's boy because of that. And so this podcast, this podcast is dedicated to giving advice and wisdom that she imparted on me that I think a lot of people need to hear because when the reason why, you know, I wanted to make the book with her was that in my life, people come to me for advice. People have come to me with their problems and I would listen to them. And one of the things that I noticed was that I would give them my mama lessons to them without telling them, you know, I didn't quote her, right? I didn't, I didn't cite her in the sense that, you know, this whole lesson is hers. I would cite her quote, right? Uh, I would say, my, my, my mama always said, 
And then my mom would, as, you know, she would hear me say these things sometimes and interrupt me. And be like, your mama didn't say that. And then when I finished it, she's like, yes, I did. I did say that. <laughs> uh, my mother was a character. And, and many people would describe our relationship. They would say that we were like brothers and sisters, friends, but they would never think of us as this ideal of mother and son. And this is what I want to us to get out of this podcast is that not only, you know, the wisdom of life, life lessons, but I also want to make it practical. And so my next episode, I'm going to have Vincent Perry, who is my financial advisor. He's going to be on the show helping us figuring out what do we need to do to prepare for death financially? What do we need to do to prepare for death? And so Vincent is going to be on the show to help us understand what we need to do to prepare for death and to, and, and, and to be able to ease the burdens of the people who will be left behind because, I, you know, my mother died suddenly. And for many people, I have not talked about what happened to my mother because I told them, you know, listen to this podcast. And uh, I'm going to go into it again um, on the next episode, but I'm going I'm to, for, for those people and other people that you, and you all are probably interested in, in it as well, of uh, what happened with my mom. So in 2009, when I was living in Washington, D.C., my mother was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. She had a first hospitalization uh, because she had, and, and I don't have a clear understanding of exactly what happened. I always said she fell out. I don't know if she fell out or not, but that's what I always said is that she fell out. And um, they rushed her. To, she went to the hospital, uh, did a whole bunch of tests, and they told her she had congestive heart failure. And that was in 2009. So she had been living with congestive heart failure uh, since then. And... Um, she was managing it. You know, we had our ups and downs. So she had some hospitalizations where her heart would get off rhythm uh, and they had to shock it back into rhythm. And then they did this thing called ablation where they went in and burnt uh, inside of her, the circuit inside of her heart, uh, some of the circuits to rewire or reroute some of the electrical um, wiring. Uh, for it to, for that to function, for it to reroute and find other ways or whatnot. And so she had done that a few times. And um, the thing that they told us to watch out for was her heart infraction rate. And so you would get your heart infraction rate through an echo. And uh, we went to the Mayo Clinic. And when I say we, it literally was her and I. I. I went to most of her doctor's appointments. I did most of the translation and talking to the doctors for her, for her to get an understanding and these kind of things. And so I was there for my mother. I had become my mother's uh, caretaker in ways that I didn't realize until I lost her. Um, but anyhow, one of the things that uh, happened when she came here to teach Derek first grade was that I forced her. Uh, she was she wasn't doing too well when she moved here in August of uh, 2020. She was barely being able to walk without you know losing her breath and these other kind of things. And so we knew her heart infraction rate wasn't doing well. And we also knew she had gained too much weight. She wasn't exercising because her heart is a muscle, and then she wasn't eating or drinking right. And so we knew that. 
if we get her to do those things, she would uh, improve her health outcomes. And um, uh, the doctors that she had, in, the cardiologists that she had in Memphis, wasn't uh, doing their job in the way that we needed them to do it because my mother had almost she had almost two fainting spells one in the fall and one in the spring that when my aunt hears this um, podcast this is going to be oh my aunts uh this is going to be their first time hearing about her having these fainting almost fainting well not all one time she did faint um it was in the middle of the night it was by two o'clock in the morning and uh, she fainted and hit the ground I, because of my paranoia, like I said, I was her caretaker, I was always afraid of that. And so when I heard the thump, I immediately hopped out of bed and ran to her. As I was going towards her, I could hear her yell, you know, saying, she thought she was yelling my name, but she was just, um, and like, we, we are naturally loud people. Uh, but she was just saying my name. And, and so as I was heading closer to her, I could hear her saying Derek. And um, her, she, and, um, so she retired in, I think we had a retirement party in January of uh, 2019. In February of 2019, I talked her into getting a defibrillator put into her chest. And this defibrillator was to, we thought it was supposed to keep her both on rhythm and to give her a shock if her heart suddenly stopped. And so uh, at that time, I knew I wanted to leave Memphis and, um, or, the, or the Memphis surrounding area because I was living in Hot Springs, Mississippi at the time. And so I talked her into going ahead and get this defibrillator in, and she, she went ahead and did it against her will because they told us, you know, a few years earlier that they wanted her to get it, wanted her to get it, wanted her to get it. She had enough of these ablations, and I was just scared, and uh, her heart infraction rate wasn't where it needed to be. And so... Uh, I talked her into going ahead and getting that put in in, in February of 2019. And then in March or April, I told you I'm a faith-based person. And so in March or April, I started interviewing for a Norfolk State University position. I was told in May that I had gotten a position and that I was moving to Norfolk. But one of the things that allowed for me to be able to leave my mom was the fact that I knew she had the defibrillator in, right? Anyhow. So fast forwarding, so uh, uh, fall of 2020, when she passed out, when she fainted, she, the defibrillator was constantly sending messages to the heart center, uh, which then was supposed to forward it to the doctor. Unbeknownst to us, she said she had bent down too fast and then everything went black. Well... That's, that wasn't the case. Her heart had stopped for a second. And that's the reason why she had passed out or either had stopped or it sped up. It, it did one of those two things, and the thing shocked her to get her, to get her back on rhythm. And it wasn't this jolt that we thought it was going to be because they, you know, or whatever. And so, uh, anyhow, so she passed out, and we didn't know. And we went to her primary care doctor that we had gotten here and, um, we talked about it, and then we got her a cardiologist here in Virginia as well, and he the one who explained uh, 
that. And so in, sp- in, in the spring, she was standing in the kitchen. So one happened overnight in her bedroom. And then um, the other one happened in the kitchen while her and I was talking. And, um, and, and her doctor in, in Memphis, which was getting these reports, never said anything. Anyhow, so when she was lived with me, that heart infraction rate, when she moved here, it was in the 20s. Now, your regular infraction rate for you not to be in congestive heart failure, it had to be like over 45 or something like that. And so she was in the, like, let's say she was down to 27, 28, somewhere in there. And they always said that, you know, the problem would be when she went into the low 20s. And so if she made it to 22, 21, 20, somewhere in there, that's when that's a heart transplant uh, space. Okay. So that's heart transplant space. So we was, uh, and they told us that if she ever made it to the high 30s, because when she first was diagnosed with it, she was in the low 40s. So she was like 42, 43. So she was borderline congestive heart failure is just that she had some bad habits that she just could not give up and there were some good habits that she could not pick up and so um her infraction rate kept on changing and going down which then led to an enlargement of her heart which then led to because the enlargement of the heart uh, was based on her congestive heart failure they couldn't treat the underlying condition because the con- underlying condition is congestive heart failure. And the thing that caused her congestive heart failure, we would never know because the last cardiologist she had, every all the other cardiologists said she must have had um, some kind of virus that infected the heart uh, that was went untreated. And, and um, so 10 years later, she ended up with congestive heart failure. And so, but but uh, other people, congestive heart failure might be due to, let's say, valves being clogged up or something like that. And so, um, whatever the cause her congestive heart failure, because that's what, you, to treat congestive heart failure, you had to treat the thing that caused it, right? And to treat the enlargement of her heart, you had to treat the underlying condition. And so the underlying condition is congestive heart failure. And the thing that caused congestive heart failure, we don't know. And so her uh, one side of her heart was enlarging. And so anyhow, uh, but when she was living with me, uh, I'm a vegetarian who had vegan tendencies. And so... um, I don't really, and and then I've been a vegetarian long enough that the smell of burning flesh makes me want to throw up. And so I could dr- I can walk out of a restaurant like you know my mom. I remember we were on vacation uh, and we went to some kind of barbecue place, and that place reeked of burning flesh. And so I couldn't stand it, and it, it, it made me want to vomit. And so I had to leave out of there so I refused to pay rent in a place and ha- and couldn't it can't be in my own house so no one can cook in my house you know flesh any 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 flesh animal in my house uh period because the smell is such a revolting smell that um I w- I can't be in the house uh and I got a sensitive nose already anyhow uh, so my mom has to pick up eating healthy habits and my mom was supposed to watch her salt intake and these kind of things. And so when she was with me, I was on top of these things. Another one of those things about being a caretaker. Um, so much so that she she was trying to sneak, you know, certain things and hide things from me and all this other kind of stuff. Um, and so. So that being said, 
the last uh, cardiologist, the one that she had here in Virginia, that her and I both liked. We liked his personality. We liked the way that he explained things. We loved the fact that he was down to earth, that he spent time with her as opposed to trying to rush through to the next person, rushing through the next person, rushing through the next person, right? And so he explained uh, a lot of things to us, but her echo came back the highest it had ever been since it left the 40s. And so she was up, she had gone from 27, 28 to being 36, 37, 38. So she had, between our walking, her drinking water and um, exercising and diet, her doing all of those things helped to get her infraction rate back into the high 30s and we were looking forward to her coming back to virginia for because when she was in memphis it would drop because my aunt louise is an enabler and didn't understand and my mother uh didn't understand the cumulative effect of eating and drinking and these kind of things and so when we have uh like whether it's mental health or even physical health that you can't see it um and the damage is that it's doing and we can't see like we can't see the damage that it's doing you know diabetes is one of these diseases as well that we can't see it so a piece of cake here or a soda pop there we can't see what that is how that is making things worse and so she couldn't see so when she went back to memphis of course her numbers got worse or whatnot and so um but she was still in a functional range and not in the space of where we would be afraid um uh, now i gotta remember the name of what happened to her so in september she started retaining fluid and this one of the things about when the heart not pumping well it doesn't retain i mean it retains fluid and it needs to get that fluid out but it's not pumping strong enough so she was in the hospital almost two weeks uh, as they worked off this um, fluid. Now, I wish then what I, you know, if it was a fifth, we'd all be drunk. But if I knew then what I know now, uh, I wish they would have put her on dialysis to remove her extra fluid instead of trying to get her kidneys to do it. And, but anyhow, so she would, she did that for like two weeks and then she came out. And in those two weeks that she came out, they gave her some more medicines and these other kind of things. And I'm not going to remember um, the name of the illness that she ended up with. Uh, it's cardiac something. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and, and hold off and look up the name because um, I, I do know what it is well i know where it is for me to look it up because i, I just honestly don't remember mm. so it's called cardiogenic shock and um and so cardiogenic shock there is no cure for it and the way that i describe it a way that i understood it and this is the way i've described it to other people is that cardiogenic shock they don't know what causes it they don't know how to fix it what we do know is that unless you can treat the underlying issue, the mortality rate of it within 30 days is like 80%. 
And so the underlying issue that caused the cardiogenic shock was my mother's congestive heart failure. As I just explained, we don't know what caused her congestive heart failure, which also led to her enlarged heart, right? And so if they can't, like a lot of the things with the heart is if they can't treat the thing, then the disease remains. And so when she entered cardiogenic shock, they originally thought that it was caused by a virus. And so they was treating her for a virus. And uh, so for someone with congestive heart failure, so a cardiogenic shock for someone who has a valve blockage, right? They got all this plaque inside of their heart uh, valve. So if they went into cardiogenic shock, if they could survive open heart surgery to remove the plaque, it would end the cardiogenic shock, right? That's the cure to cardiogenic shock is the cure, the thing that caused it. But you can't, there's no cure for cardiogenic shock. And so for someone like my mother, it ended up being a heart attack. It was a heart attack for congestive heart failure. So this cardiogenic shock took her from her uh, infraction rate that probably was in the high 30s by then, uh, low 30s, I mean, but so probably in the 32 to 27, 28 range to now being in 18 range, which means uh, heart transplant range. And so she she went from managing her disease really well, 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 um, to now in need of a heart transplant or an assistive device. Um, and that is what the problem was. And so what we started trying to do, and I'll talk about this more in the next episode, is um, uh, I, I try to do some life-saving measures to try to get her to a place to where she could recover to get an assistive device um, to be able to help her where she could then continue living. And so this is what happened. So she ended up having basically just like how you can have a sudden heart attack or a stroke and you didn't even know that you had any heart issues and it just, you know, sudden. And so let me snap up there. And so it's just sudden and, and, and then you're gone. So she had uh, this cardiogenic shock that was like a sudden heart attack for someone in her condition that um, led to her death. And so this was her cause. And I, and I only wanted to say or talk about this one time. And so, uh, so I put off telling anybody what happened, you know, besides, you know, um, family of what happened to her. Um, this is me explaining it and, and, and other people because one of these episodes is going to be dedicated to uh, African-Americans and health issues where I'm going to bring on I have some former students who are medical doctors uh, and everything and, and, and friends who are medical doctors and nurses uh, and, and public health officials where we can actually start talking about some of the health issues that we have and some of the lessons that I've learned from my mother in watching us uh, deal with disease. Uh, like I said, they have a cumulative effect on our bodies uh, that, that we can't see today, but by doing it, uh, and, and the fact that, yeah, but anyhow, um, and so we'll, we'll talk about those things. So that's, that's, a, that's the first episode, right? This is 
uh, the episode that that um, explains who I am and why I'm doing this. You got a glimpse of who she is, and not a lot, but you got a glimpse of who she is. She had, you know, a sense of humor with, you know, all these other kind of things. And so, as time goes on, I'm gonna teach you more about who she is and who she was for me. And I still do use the present tense, and we're gonna talk about that as well, because my mother taught me to believe in ghosts and God and uh, visions and dreams and meanings and because uh, I've been having several dreams about her. Um, I even, one of my former students, Robbie, told me, my, Robbie lost her mom in February of 2021. And Robbie is, uh, and her family are actually moving to Memphis. And um, she thought the dream probably had something to do with her mom, I mean, about, about the moving to Memphis. And so she was saying that she had come to, she was at my house with my mom and her mom, and we were looking for some woman in my house, right? And I immediately told my mom about that dream because Robbie's mom had already passed on of congestive heart failure as well. That was one of, like, Robbie and I, you know, had developed into friendship uh, over us being from going from professor to student. And let me go ahead and say, I don't know if Robbie ever thought of me as her professor. <laughs> That's a whole nother conversation though. Uh, but we did develop into being friends. And um, her mom also had congestive heart failure. And so we, we bonded, uh, not to say bonded over, but we bonded by discussing our hard-headed mothers together as they did not do all of the doctor recommended uh, things uh, for their congestive heart failure. So that was one of the things we would talk about uh, all the time uh, about how stubborn or uh, uh, having to get on our mothers about um, that. And, that. and so parents that's listening to this, why we got to raise you? Like, I, I know they say you got to, you get to, to have a childhood twice, but, you know, being your your mother's parent is really hard, right? Y'all need to do better. Y'all need to do better. So this is the first podcast. Uh, next time we're going to do uh, the first lesson. You know, like I said, you got a glimpse of her. I want to give a, a shout-out to one of my former students, uh, Ennis Newman, a.k.a. Avenging Win, a.k.a. Fathom Nine. I, I don't remember which one was first. But uh, the music, the intro music, the outro music that you heard earlier was performed by him on his album called Dump Truck Blues. Ennis was one of my students. He took several classes from me. He passed away the year that I was in a real bad car wreck in 2014. Uh, um, and uh, he and I had discussed him doing the music and me using his music for my podcast because I've been interested in doing podcasts for years, years, and years now. The equipment now has caught up enough to where I feel like it's uh, the technology gap and my knowledge about technology has disappeared, uh, now, but it's now just making the time to sit down and do the stuff. But anyhow, so this is a longer episode than uh, normal, but I want to give a shout-out to Ennis Newman and honor him. Uh, I want to uh, give a shout out to my other mother, Dr. Jacqueline Rouse. She was my uh, academic mother. She passed away in May of 2020 um, after a short battle with um, uh, with with a disease, an uh, illness. She, uh, not everybody knows what uh, she was suffering from, so I'm not going to deal with that. But uh, so Dr. Jacqueline Rouse uh, is greatly missed as well, and of course Deborah Ann Lenoise. I, I dedicate everything that I do and have I and I dedicated everything that I did to her 
uh, while she was here and I still will after she's gone. Um, that's my podcast. I hope that you will share with all of your friends and all of your families and you can listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Check, check. I'm a blues man, a lone son gunning. Bring it at your feet, don't feel you keep running. Bring it at the funky drummer, keep strumming, cause I won't be stopped. Hell, I keep coming. I'm a blues man, a lone son gunning. Bring it at your feet, don't feel you keep running. Bring it at the funky drummer, keep strumming, cause I won't be stopped. Like hell, I keep coming. I won't be stopped. Like hell, I keep coming. I won't be stopped. Like hell.